0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church Located in Charleston, South Carolina For more information about Grace on the Ashley Visit graceontheashley.org I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles in the New Testament book of Luke If you have your Bibles with you Luke chapter 6 continue in our study this morning of Luke's gospel. If you did not bring your Bible with you this morning, you don't have one, there are some uh, spread out in the, uh, the room underneath some of the chairs, and uh, we'll uh, put up on the screens the, the relevant text for this morning as well. Luke chapter 6, we, we jump back into our systematic study of Luke's gospel, and we jump back in at verse 12. And we'll look through verse 16 this morning with the time we have. Luke writes in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, these words. He says, "In these days he, that's Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, Simon who was called the Zealot and Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. I think it's, it's ironic that we come to this text on this particular weekend. Uh, yesterday was September the 11th, and for most people around the world, that date isn't particularly significant. But for uh, folks who live in the United States of America, that date is a very significant date. For 20 years ago, we were attacked by terrorists who hijacked uh, civilian aircraft. And Crashed them into the World Trade Center, into the Pentagon, and uh, into a, a field. I don't know how you reflect on that every year, and I hope that you do remember that, and I hope that you do remember all of those who were affected by those days and all of the circumstances that led up to it and the things that have resulted from it. It's something we, in a sort of collective consciousness as Americans, should not ever forget. Thousands of people lost their life that day. But in the mix of that, there's one that I remember regularly. I reread yesterday the transcript of his call to the 911 operator from United Flight 93 as it was flying. His name was Todd Beamer. I'm sure you probably read about Todd Beamer over the years. You can find the transcript of his 911 call. He was able to get a call out from the aircraft after the hijackers had taken the plane, and he was able to describe uh, to some degree to the operator and then to an FBI agent who was put on the line uh, what was going on. And if you read through the transcript of that conversation, uh, I'm sure it'll have the same effect on you as it does on me. It, It brings tears to your eyes, and it also gives you tremendous respect for this man, Todd Beamer, and for the choice that he made. If you recall the story, he and a few others, based on that phone call, had found out that other aircraft had already been hijacked and had already been crashed into the World Trade Center towers and that the plane they were on was headed toward Washington, D.C., either to the Capitol or the White House. And he and three other passengers had made a choice that they wouldn't just sit and be victims, that they were going to fight to try to save the lives of other innocent people in those destinations and the rest of the story we know uh, they were able to to some degree fight back and the plane went down well short of its target tragically all those on board died but fortunately many on the ground were saved you should go back and read you should go back and read that transcript it gives you a good sense of the of the ethos of the moment and the situation people were put in on that particular day we remember Todd Beamer because his last words were, let's roll, let's roll, and roll they did. But the thing that's striking about Todd Beamer to me is he was just an ordinary average guy. He did something really extraordinary, but as far as I can tell, there was nothing really extraordinary about him that would have set him apart other than to people who knew him and loved him. Prior to that, if you had seen a crowd of 100 people on September the 10th, and someone I told you picked the most extraordinary person out of the crowd, it's very unlikely that you would have, there would have been anything about Todd Beamer that would have called attention to himself to cause you to notice him or choose him. Just an ordinary average guy. And yet, here we are, still a couple of decades down the road from those days, and we still remember his words. And we still remember his heroic, extraordinary deeds on that day. He's an ordinary average guy who did something really, really remarkable, really heroic. Throughout the history of the world, and throughout particularly the history of the people of God, we find in the Word of God that God delights in selecting and choosing average, ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. In fact, when God surveys the, the scene of humanity and he calls out and chooses people to do things for himself... It's almost as though his criteria for choosing is precisely the opposite of the way the world chooses people to do things that are important. In fact, Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he says to this, this church at Corinth, he's talking about their calling to salvation, but he says this to them. He says, "For Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. It's a simple principle that Paul was reminding that church of, and it's this simple principle that God delights in calling weak and imperfect and sometimes foolish people to do really remarkable and extraordinary things for him. He delights to call to himself and to commission into his service people who are largely overlooked by the world, people who wouldn't normally be selected by the world's criteria, and he does that on purpose. He does that, in part at least, we see here, to display his transforming power in them to show what the power of Christ can do to change someone from being ordinary to being extraordinary. And he does it also because we see here that he gets the glory when they do extraordinary things and not them. He chooses those kinds of people so that they don't get in the way of the glory at the end. And as we turn to our text today, we see that Jesus is going to call some ordinary average men to do something quite extraordinary for the kingdom of God. And we're reminded of this truth that God delights in selecting and choosing average people. Average people to do remarkable things. If you're here this morning and you look at yourself in the mirror and you think, you know, I'm not anybody really important, I don't, I'm not particularly rich, I'm not the most highly educated person in the world, I don't have a wall full of degrees and accolades and awards. Maybe you don't feel like you're the most beautiful person, maybe you look at your bank account and you know you're not the most wealthy person in the world. Maybe you feel like you're just sort of going through life, doing whatever it is you do, but largely unnoticed by most people. And when you sort of make a conclusion about yourself, you just conclude, you know, I'm just an ordinary average gal. I'm just an ordinary average guy. Well, if that's the conclusion you draw about your own self, then you need to understand this morning, and I hope you'll see from our text, that that makes you a prime candidate for doing extraordinary things for the Lord. You're precisely the kind of person that he would call and choose to do something remarkable for him. When we turn to our text this morning, we, we jump back into Matthew, to Luke's gospel. and Luke's been showing us the ministry of Jesus, and he's been showing us sort of the rising conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. And we saw in our sort of last installment in, in this narrative that they had encountered Christ, and he had made them so angry that they were literally out of their mind with fury, and they were debating among themselves how they were going to get rid of him. They were plotting to kill him. Figuring out how they can make this happen. And so Luke has showed us sort of the, 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 the cultural temperature rising. And now he turns our attention to something that Jesus does very strategic here in his ministry. He knows what his plan is. He knows what the Father's plan from all eternity is for him to ultimately go to the cross and be crucified in the place of sinners. He knows that's coming. And he knows that, that the ministry that he's establishing needs to go on after his death and after his burial and after his resurrection and it's going to depend on some critical leaders to make that happen and so Luke turns our attention to Jesus' calling of these critical leaders and he gives it to us really in a very straightforward simple sort of a way here in chapter 6 he simply says in those days he went out to a mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God and when day came he called his disciples and he chose from them 12 whom he named Apostles. Very straightforward. Very straightforward. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here that are important. Jesus is calling his apostles here, his 12 apostles. We're going to talk more about that in a moment, but I want you to notice that this particular calling is, is part of a series of callings that he's placed upon their life. And we need to sort of understand this in the bigger sense. If, if you were to go back to John chapter 1, verse 35 and following, uh, you'll see that Jesus had already previously encountered these men. He had already previously come into their world and had called them to believe upon him as the Messiah. He had called them to faith, to believe. Just one example of that in John chapter 1, verse 41. Just previous to this, he had revealed himself as the Messiah to Andrew, a man named Andrew. And Andrew, we're told in verse 41, first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And Luke goes I mean excuse me John goes on to describe how how Andrew goes to Peter and brings him to Jesus and they he comes to understand that Jesus is the Messiah and comes to faith in him and we're we find out in John chapter 1 how a similar call was placed on Philip's life and on Nathaniel some of the men that are in this list they'd already been called to believe in Jesus but then in Luke chapter 5 we see a second calling in their life it was a calling to leave their careers and to follow after him as disciples They were called to to, to drop what they were doing as a career and to be full-time in his training program, if you will. One example of that would be in Luke chapter 5, verse 11. When Jesus encounters a handful of them, they're fishing. and He works a miracle for them. And And it says here in verse 11, when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. He called them at that time to stop being fishers of fish and said he was going to transform them into fishers of men. They were going to embark on a new career, and that career was going to begin with a training program that would entail them following him everywhere he went, listening to what he did, participating in the miracles that he performed and being trained in this schoolhouse of Jesus to conduct the ministry once he's gone. But here in Luke chapter 6, we have really what amounts to a third calling. It's a calling to apostleship. It's it's a calling to an office, to a particular office and a particular role in the kingdom of God that is unique to these 12 men. And it's what we'll look at mostly this morning. But in the future, we'll see another calling. They're called to deploy into the world and to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the, the earth. So this, what we find in Luke 6, is sort of nested in a, a series of callings. They've already believed upon Jesus, right? They've already begun to, to, to leave their, 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 their careers and follow after him and be trained by him. And here we're told at the very beginning, at this moment, and we're not told when this is in relation to the things before, he just says uh, on some day or in those days that he calls his disciples, which at this point was a large crowd of people, and out of that group of people, He calls these 12 men, and he named them apostles. He chose them to to be in a special relationship with him, to hold a a particular office in the kingdom of God. And from this point on, they'll spend about a year and a half with him before he's crucified, buried, and raised. I'll just make note of this, because we'll come back to this theme later. But it's not by accident that Luke tells us that before Jesus selected these men, do you notice what he did? What did he do? Well, he spent an all-night doing something in particular. He prayed. He prayed. It's the only time in the New Testament that we have an account of Jesus holding an all-night prayer vigil. He prays a lot. We see him praying a lot. But in this case, he prayed all night. This was a very, very significant point in his ministry of choosing these men. The whole of his ministry was going to be handed to them and all of really the future of of the church of Jesus Christ was going to rise and fall on them. And so it was critical. And because it was critical, he spent significant time in prayer, communing with his father, seeking the father's heart, and making sure he understood specifically who it was that was to be called. And so Jesus prayed And we're told that he called them out of the disciples and he named them apostles. So what is an apostle and how is that different from being a disciple? Well, the word disciple in the New Testament simply is translated a word that means student or follower or learner. It's a general word that means someone who follows, someone who studies under a teacher, someone who's learning. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a disciple of Christ, right? You're, you're learning of him. You're following after him. You're a student of his word and his teaching. But the word apostle carries a whole different sort of an angle. The word apostle literally means a messenger or an ambassador. Someone who holds the unique responsibility of being a representative that's invested with full authority to represent someone else. And so these men had already become followers, students, learners of Jesus, but now he's commissioning them to a different office. He is calling them to be his particular ambassadors, his particular representatives that have his full authority to represent him in the world around them. The word is used, the word apostles is used in a general sense. Uh, in the New Testament, simply to mean messengers, uh, really a non-technical sense. But most often, it's used in the sense that it's used here, referring to these twelve men and their unique office in the early church. And it was a, an office held uniquely by these twelve men. We know one is going to is going to become a traitor. He's going to hang himself and die. He's going to be replaced in the early part of the book of Acts by a man by the name of Matthias, who's going to then be technically the 13th disciple that's called. And then later on down the road, or excuse me, the 13th apostle, and then later down the road, Jesus encounters the apostle Paul. And he calls him to apostleship as well. Apart from those names, nobody else has ever been an apostle of Jesus Christ. Only them. It was a unique office. And we'll talk more about that. But I imagine when you read the names and you See the number, that there's 12 of them, that if you've read much of the Old Testament, that your mind is automatically probably making some connections that to Old Testament Israel. That began really when God established himself among Israel. He did it through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob had how many sons? Twelve who became the patriarchs, the, the foundation of the nation of Israel, the people of God of the Old Testament. Well, This time God is building for himself another people, a new people for himself. Not an ethnic people, not a nation that that resides within sort of uh, uh, geographical boundaries, but he's building for himself a new people, a people who are united not by, by language or by ethnicity or by location, but a people who are united by faith in the risen Christ who come from every nation and tribe and tongue. And so in establishing his new people, he does it once again. By calling out 12 unique individuals to be foundational in building what it is that he's building. And these men are those 12. You say, well, what was the qualification of being an apostle? There are a few qualifications for being an apostle. And when we see these, I think you'll understand why nobody else fits the qualification. To be a, an apostle, as far as we can tell in the New Testament, you had to be called directly by Jesus. Jesus. This was not an office that you could volunteer for. There was no sign-up sheet like we do at the church, right? Hey, we need volunteers to be apostles for Jesus. Why don't you sign up? We're looking for some important people. You couldn't volunteer. There was no way to earn your way in. There was no election for the the people to gather and choose the most worthy among them. There was no polling of the crowd. It simply went like this. Jesus prayed and Jesus chose. And he called them by name directly. He would remind them later, very directly, he would say to them, remember, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Every one of these men was called by Jesus. We see that directly. There's a whole group of disciples. Out of that group, he calls these men and gives them the title apostle. If you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 21 through 22, you see some other qualifications that emerge. And these sort of emerge in the context of Judas having now killed himself and the disciples realizing that he needs to be replaced among the group to maintain the number 12. And so they're discussing this in Acts chapter 1. And we're told this. So one of the men who have accompanied, uh, this is who needs to be selected. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from of us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so we see some other criteria that were very clear of who it is that, that is qualified for this role or for this office. Not only do they have to be called by Christ, but they have to be witness to the resurrected Christ. When they were thinking about who needed to replace Judas, it had to be someone who had been there and been an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus and someone who was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. They had to have seen his miracles and heard his teaching and most importantly witnessed the resurrection. What's the other qualification? Well, we see later that the the, the apostles are given miraculous gifts that are unique to the apostles. So this was a part of their calling as apostles. They were gifted with miraculous gifts. That was unique to them. In Luke chapter 9, we'll run into this later. Beginning in verse 1, he called the 12 together. And he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. He gave them the unique ability to mirror some of the miracles that he performed. And he did that for the same reason that he performed them himself, to be able to validate the message that they were preaching. So in the absence of a written New Testament and against a backdrop of a culture where there are all sorts of false prophets running around, Jesus calls these men, he commissions them as apostles, and he gives them the ability to do miracles that were similar to his in order to validate the gospel message that they were preaching, that it was indeed the truth and the same truth that he preached. So they're given the ability to do these miraculous things like Jesus did. And the work that they were called to is a a unique work. What is it that apostles did, and what is their work? Well, let's just briefly talk about that for a moment. After the resurrection of Jesus, these men become the foundation of the New Testament church. They have to carry out his ministry in his absence. They're called specifically to establish the foundation of the church, the New Testament Christian church. They're a unique group with a unique work, and it's a temporary office to which they're called. The culture of the first century was a very unique time in history. It was a transitional time in the history of God's people. The first century was a time in which we had a transition taking place from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And in this moment in time when all of this takes place, there's a a season of overlap here where the Old Testament economy is coming to a conclusion and the New Testament era is launching and there's not a hard break there's a bit of a of a of a spillover if you will during this season there's a transition that's going on from prophets like you had in the old testament to preachers who are going to declare first the spoken word of Christ and then later the written word and the once the canon is finished This is a unique time in history when God in human flesh, the Lord Jesus, had just walked among men. He had just come near to them. He had just declared his gospel. He had just died in their place for their salvation. And so it was a unique time. There were people around who had witnessed him and seen him and worked with him and ministered with him. And the gospel has just now been birthed. The message is new. It's different than anything people had heard before. And it's quite at odds with the prevailing religious teaching of the Judaism around them. The church is fledgling. It's just getting off the ground. There's no written New Testament yet. And both the Jewish culture around and the Gentile culture around are all hostile to this group and to its message of the gospel. And so during this unique time, there had to be a unique leadership team to represent Christ for this season. And so he calls these men to be apostles to be preachers who preach the gospel boldly to validate that gospel with miracles, to speak with the authority of Jesus, to write down the things that they heard and the things that they saw and to give some explanation of what those things mean by the power of the Holy Spirit, to provide order to the early church and to do all of those things until the objective truth of God is codified in the New Testament these men were a unique gift to the Christian church. They served a unique role at a very unique period in the history of the church. And it's hard for us to overestimate their impact on the world. And it's a testimony to the power of Christ when we go back and look at who they were and who they weren't. We're told in verses 14 through 16 a little bit about them, just their names, in fact. He lists them. Simon, we he named Peter and Andrew, his brother, James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. As we walk through the rest of Luke's gospel, we're going to see some of these names pop up throughout the narrative. But today, I want to just sort of survey the group as a whole. We'll come back and look at them individually as we run into them in the text. Just incidentally, you know, this is totally an aside. I remember the names of the 12 apostles without having to read them. You know why I remember? Because there was a Sunday school teacher when I was a little kid that taught us a song. Put the names of these apostles to a song. Did any of you have that experience when you were little? And you know, I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, but I remember that song. And anytime I need to remember the 12 apostles, in my head, I have to sing that song. And i get all 12 every time. So the message to you is if you're having trouble learning them, find somebody who can sing and let them teach it to you in a song. When we look at the New Testament, these men are listed in four, four different places in the New Testament. Their names are listed for us in four different places. You can find charts online about that sort of put these parallel. That one will pop up on your screen in just a moment here. But you'll see four lists of names. It's kind of small, so you can't necessarily see it very well. But what you'll find that's common in all the lists, there are some similarities and there are some differences in the list, but the similarities are this. The the names are always in three groups of four names. They're grouped sort of in groups of four. And each group of four, the first person listed is is consistent in each of the lists. So in the first four, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, Simon Peter is always listed first. In the second group of four, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. Philip is always listed first and James the son of Alphaeus and, and all the way down to Judas, James is always listed first. Now there's some some underneath those first ones there are some shuffling of the names but you always find him in three groups of four. Peter is always listed first. He was the most prominent of them all and Judas is always listed last. Some of the men you'll notice uh, have more than one name which wasn't uncommon in their culture and so We deduce that from putting these passages in parallel and figuring out who they are. Uh, The names are largely listed in descending order based on intimacy with Christ. So largely, not exclusively, as you move down the list from Peter down toward Judas, you're moving in a descending order of sort of intimacy and closeness to the inner circle of Jesus. Peter, James, and John, as we read through the the Gospels, we're going to see that they are really the inner circle of Christ. He, He pulls them aside and away from the rest of the apostles On multiple occasions for unique sort of training experiences if you will up on a mountain where he gives them a glimpse of his glory particular healings one one where he raises a girl from the dead he pulls them aside uniquely beyond them others have varying degrees of prominence in the New Testament Uh, the early names we're going to hear more about as we work through the Gospel of Luke several of the names later in the list we don't know anything about them other than their names they're just listed here and we're told that they are apostles and that's it but as we look at these men and we begin to dig into who are they and what what we find about them is when we start asking the question what makes them noteworthy it's really unique that what makes them noteworthy at the beginning is that they're just average people they're just ordinary folks they're mostly from galilee 11 of them are judas is from elsewhere They're all from the same area in Galilee, which is kind of an out-of-the-way place. They weren't from Rome. They weren't from anywhere that was important at the time. They were from an out-of-the-way place, sort of ordinary, hardworking, blue-collar folks. They were not the wealthy upper class of their culture. They were largely all basically poor people. Matthew likely had some money at one point when he was collecting taxes, but he'd walked away from that at this point, and now he was abject. You know, abjectly poor, just like the rest of them, living day-to-day, trusting in Christ. So they weren't the wealthy upper class. They were not religious elites. There's not a scribe. There's not a Pharisee. There's not a Sadducee. There's not an important religious person in the mix. There's, they're not the intellectual elites. They're, they're not people that we have any indication had any particular uh, training or any particular education. In fact, they... Uh, don't appear to be particularly educated. There's nothing impressive about them in that regard. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, we find this. Now, when they, that's the, the, the broader culture in which they were ministering, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived, we're told, that they were, what kind of people? Uneducated and common men. They were astonished. So when the ministry happens and the power of God is working through these people, the the crowd is looking at them, scratching their head, going, what's the deal with this? How are these kind of people doing this kind of thing? Because they're largely uneducated people, common men, average. Who do they think they are? They weren't the intellectual elites. They were just common, uneducated laborers. And if you had looked out over that large crowd of disciples that had gathered around Jesus on this particular day, there is no way, if we had told you, go pick the 12 people that need to be the leaders of the Christian church after Jesus' death and resurrection, there's no way you would have picked these 12. Only God would have picked this this group. And yet picked this group, he did. In every sense, they were ordinary. They were also a diverse group in many ways. Four of them were fishermen. One was a tax collector. One was a political revolutionary. They, they, they didn't have a whole lot in common. In fact, you could just sort of see the contrast between Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Matthew was a tax collector who was a Jewish man who had really sold out his own people to have a, a, a taxation franchise that he had purchased from the Romans to be able to now a, a sort of um, fleece his own people out of taxation so that he could get rich as the middleman between them and Rome. And so any Jew would have hated Matthew for that, and you have high, you have right in the mix of that Simon the Zealot, who was a revolutionary, a political revolutionary. He was a part of the Zealots, who were a, a very zealous group who hated the Romans and anybody who cooperated with the Romans. In fact, they had a sort of a sect within the Zealots who were trained killers who carried a special little short knife that they would kidnap and kill Romans and Jews who cooperated with the Romans. And Simon the Zealot was one of that group. Can you imagine Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector in the same crowd? You couldn't have picked two people that were more politically the opposite ends of the spectrum in their culture than those two. They would have hated each other politically. And yet Jesus calls them to be apostles together. One's conspiring to assassinate Romans. The other's serving the Romans, exploiting his own people. When we look at the group and their personalities, there's a a diverse group of personalities as well. Uh, Some of them are bold and, and impulsive. Others are more introverted and hesitant. Some are more quick to act and move and to believe. Others are more doubtful and questioning. It's a very diverse group. They did not have a lot in common. They would not have naturally associated with one another. And there were an awful lot of reasons that they would have had to fight and argue amongst themselves. They're a group that's flawed in many ways. Many ways these men were flawed. There is, in our t- and I think in our world, some, some temptation to look back and read the Bible and to place these men on some sort of, a, of an elevated pedestal where we sort of exalt them to some level of sainthood and think that they're very different from us in this way, that they had some level of perfection that was far above ours. What we find when we look at them is that they're actually quite flawed individuals. They're slow learners, Jesus teaches them the same thing over and over and over again and as we read through the Gospels we are asking ourselves will these guys ever get it? Will they ever get it? Jesus I think was wondering that at times too in Matthew 8 uh, verse 17 tells us Jesus was aware of this and he said to them why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hard? You can't believe that they still don't get what he's been teaching. And he says things like that many times. They, They were slow to learn. They had weak faith quite often. Jesus, he, he, he marvels at times at their lack of faith. Now, on a particular occasion, they're on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus takes a nap, and a storm rolls up, and they're scared to death. They think they're going to die and drown. What a foolish thing to think when Jesus is actually in the boat with you. But that's what they thought nonetheless, right? We let smaller things frighten us. Jesus wakes up to them, and he says to them, Why are you afraid, O you, of what? little faith, little faith. And he rebukes the wind and the, the sea. And you remember Peter walks on water, this miraculous thing, and he takes his eyes off Jesus and he falls, and what does Jesus say to him? He have little faith. Over and over he says this to them. Their faith was weak at times. There were times when they soared, but there were many times when their faith was weak. They, they, they struggled. They struggled with pride. Throughout the gospels we find them quite often having conversations amongst themselves, not about the glory of Jesus, but about who's going to be number one when Jesus is out of the way. The exact opposite of humility. They were prideful men who struggled with human pride. They were flawed. Jesus finally has had enough of that, and he has to give them a living illustration. And he gathers them together in John. We see this in John 13, and he says, okay, men, you need to understand what greatness really looks like. So since you're not getting it, let me show you. And he takes a basin and he takes a towel and he kneels down in front of them and the son of God literally washes their feet. He takes on the role of a servant and he humbles himself. And he says, this is what greatness is. It's not exalting yourself to first place. It's humbling yourself and serving others in last place. But they still don't even get it then. Jesus didn't call these men because of their faith. Their faith often faltered. He didn't call them because of their talent and ability. None of them stood out as particularly talented. He didn't call them because of their influence. There was no indication that any of them had particular influence. He did not call them for any of those things. He did not call them because of what they were. He called them because of what he saw that they could become. He was able to see beyond their flaws and to see their potential. And I think that's remarkable. It would do us all a lot of good to be able to pray and ask the Lord to give us that kind of an ability as we navigate the world with people, wouldn't it? Lord, help me to see beyond the flaws of the people around me and help me to be able to see them with a view of what they can become. Not who they are right now, not the things that are flaws, not the things that irritate me, not the things that get on my nerves, not the things that I disapprove of in their life, but help me to look at them in the eyes and see beyond those things and see what they can become if they entrust themselves to you. I, 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 trust me, if you pray that, he'll help you to do that, and it'll transform how you navigate with people. But that's how Jesus saw these men. And it's noteworthy so that he intentionally called Judas, isn't it? He knew the plan. He knew Judas would betray him. And yet Judas is called like the rest of them. He had the same access. He had the same training. He had the same opportunity as all the other apostles. And yet he was a devil. That's worth thinking about a bit. We see later on in their ministry that when Jesus is arrested and crucified, they abandon him. They leave he suffers on the cross alone it's not until after the resurrection after they see his resurrected self that they're transformed fully into who they would become and they go from being frightened men who are hiding in fear to being bold proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus in front of magistrates, in front of authorities in front of anybody absolutely refusing to be intimidated by anyone These men were weak men. They were flawed men. They were ordinary, average men. And yet they're exactly who Jesus calls, who he commissions to to make disciples of all the nations, who he calls to be the foundation of the Christian church, who he calls and commissions to, to literally write down his inspired word for future generations. And here we are millennia down the road of history, and we're still talking about Peter and Andrew and James and John and Nathaniel and Bartholomew. Amazing, remarkable what God did with these men. Are there apostles still today? No, there's not apostles still today. Nobody meets the qualifications, and nobody has since these men died. Nobody possesses the validating, miraculous gifts that the Lord gave them, the function of the office is no longer even necessary in the life of the church because the word of God is complete and it functions as the sole rule of truth in the body of Christ. You no longer need apostles. We could say it this way. Apostolic authority has been replaced with biblical authority. And there's no indication historically, by the way, when these men all died, that there was any effort made to replace them. It isn't until modern times, really, in the big scope of history, that people start going around in the church calling themselves apostle this and apostle that. When you hear that, you just need to understand that these people mean something altogether different by that term apostle than what you see in the New Testament that these 12 men held the office of. But these men were average, ordinary people, And you think, if you look at the world around us today, there are about 2.5 billion people in our world who identify themselves as Christian. Think about that for a minute. 2.5 billion people in 2021. Every single one of those people traces their spiritual heritage back to these 12 men. Every one of them. These 12 ordinary, flawed men who were slow to learn, who had weak faith, who are not particularly remarkable in and of themselves. The world has literally been changed through their obedience to Christ and their fulfilling of the calling of apostle that Jesus called them to in Luke chapter 6. These ordinary men, almost all of them died as martyrs. History doesn't tell us about all of them, but we know about some of them. We know Peter was martyred in Rome, 66 A.D., was crucified upside down Andrew preached in Asia Minor and Turkey and then later in Greece and he was we're told crucified on an X shaped cross he was tied to it we believe that James was beheaded Thomas was at least in one account we're told he was pierced through with a spear Philip ministered all the way out to Egypt and was killed by stoning It's unclear, we can't say for sure how Matthew died, but there are some accounts who tell us that he preached in Persia and all the way into Africa, out to Ethiopia, where he's burned at the stake, perhaps even impaled as well. Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew, also preached in Persia and India. Uh, One account tells us that he was crucified, another account tells us that he was tied in a sack and thrown into the sea. James the son of Alphaeus we're told was stoned and clubbed to death. Not sure about Matthias but we are told at least in one account that he was stoned and then burned to death. And really John the apostle John alone lives to be an old man in exile on the island of Patmos where he writes the book of Revelation. These ordinary average men who wouldn't have been noticeable for anything significant in their culture literally changed the world for Christ and they went to gruesome deaths largely rejoicing in Christ and faithful to him to the very end we're going to encounter these men all throughout the gospel of Luke and we're going to learn more about the ones that we know more about as we find them in the text but this morning I'm really left with the, just the thought how do we, what, do we, what do we say about this A quick survey of them this morning Well, I think we have to notice this reality that God calls average, ordinary people. What I find today is that God is still calling people to serve him in various ways. He's still calling pastors. He's still calling ministers. He's still calling people into music ministry. He's still calling people into ministry to teenagers and to children. He's still calling missionaries to go into cities and into nations and all around the world to be his hands and his feet and his voice among every nation, tribe, and tongue. He still calls people, and he still largely calls the same kinds of people. People who are weak sometimes in their faith. People who are flawed in various ways and lack holiness and perfection. People who, by the world's standards, are really just average and ordinary folks. You know, people just like you. People just like me. And we tend to let ourselves off the hook of that calling in our lives, I think, by saying to ourselves, you know what, he can use somebody like me. I'm a flawed individual. I don't, I don't understand all the theology I need to understand. Or we list the list of reasons why he couldn't use someone like us. Sort of as an out. But the reality is he can use someone just like you. To do things that you could have never imagined he could do. Through you and in you. And would you consider this morning your own life and where you are in the big world around you. And where you are in your walk with Christ and... And and what it is that he's potentially calling you to do. Is he calling you to go serve him somewhere in the world? Is he calling you out just like he called Peter and Nathaniel and Bartholomew out of the crowd to do something for him that you're afraid to do, that you don't think you're qualified to do, that you don't think you have the gifts to do? Why are you not saying yes? Why are you not doing what these men did in spite of their fears and in spite of their flaws and failures? they accepted the call and they trusted Christ to provide every step of the way and every one of them went to their death, saying Jesus helped me every step of the way these men could have never dreamed at their calling what God was going to do through them I don't know when I get to heaven I want to find out that they have any sense that one day billions of people would come to faith in Christ around the world throughout the generations because of them saying yes to the call of Christ in their life and faithfully doing what they could. Would you consider the calling of Christ on your life? Why would you say no when Jesus calls you to say yes? Let's pray together. Lord, we're amazed by these men. We're amazed by their testimony. We're amazed by the fact that you would take people like them people who had a thousand reasons to be divided and you would unite them with the gospel and you would re- unite them with a mission to go out in the world and make disciples for you. You would take their weaknesses and you would take their strengths. You would take their, their uh, the things that they were good at and the things that they struggled with. You would take their fears and you would take their doubts. You would take their sometimes slowness and unwillingness to learn and you would transform them into powerful Powerful apostles who stood firm in their faith to the very end and who literally changed the world. And though you're not still calling apostles to that office, you are still calling people to serve. You're calling people to faith. You're calling people to repent of their sin, to turn away from trying to save themselves by their own good works, and to look to you, Lord Jesus, and your sacrifice on the cross. For their sin and to trust in you and be saved you're calling people to that and there are some even in this place who have been resisting that call I pray this morning that they would hear your call again loud and clear come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest for your soul and you're still calling men and women to serve you and the work of your kingdom all around the world we've seen some go out from this body to serve as missionaries You've called out of the the legacy of this church people to serve as pastors, to serve as music ministers, to serve as youth pastors, children's ministers. You've called people to volunteer in local ministries to be your hands and feet. And you're still doing that. And today you're calling some who are still resisting. God, won't you draw them out? Help them to say yes to you this morning, whatever the cost. Lord, you do your work in us and you apply this to our hearts personally and specifically the way that it needs to be applied. And give us the faith to respond with obedience. For we pray it in your holy name, amen.